I think to be an artist, you always feel like somewhat of an outsider. Um, that's part of what drives your work is to push open things, push through things, right? To break boundaries that you feel are real or, or at least perceive them as such. Certainly always questioning. And the place of questioning is always, in a sense, isolating and feeling like an outsider. Because sometimes you're sitting, isn't anybody else asking these questions? From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Now here's your host, Megan Hayes. Richard Blanco is the fifth presidential inaugural poet in U.S. history, joining the ranks of Robert Frost and Maya Angelou in this role. He's the youngest first Latino immigrant and gay person to have served in such a role. Born in Madrid to Cuban exile parents and raised in Miami, the negotiation of cultural identity and place characterize his body of work. He is the author of the poetry collections Looking for the Gulf Motel, Directions to the Beach of the Dead, and City of a Hundred Fires. The poetry chapbooks Matters of the Sea, One Today, and Boston Strong, a children's book of his inaugural poem, One Today, and Boundaries, a collaboration with photographer Jacob Hessler. His latest book of poems, How to Love a Country, both interrogates the American narrative, past and present, and celebrates the still unkempt promise of its ideals. Blanco's many honors include the Agnes Lynch Starrett Poetry Prize from the University of Pittsburgh Press, the Penn Beyond Margins Award, the Patterson Poetry Prize, a Lambda Literary Award, and two Maine Literary Awards. He has been a Woodrow Wilson Visiting Fellow and received honorary doctorates from McAllister College, Colby College, and the University of Rhode Island. He's been featured on CBS Sunday Morning and NPR's Fresh Air. The Academy of American Poets named him its first education ambassador in 2015. Blanco has continued to write occasional poems for organizations and events, such as the reopening of the U.S. Embassy in Havana. He lives with his partner in Bethel, Maine. Richard Blanco's mother, seven months pregnant, and the rest of the family arrived as exiles from Cuba to Madrid, where he was born on February 15, 1968. Forty-five days later, the family immigrated once more to New York City. Only a few weeks old, Blanco already belonged to three countries, a foreshadowing of the concerns of place and belonging that would shape his life and work. Eventually, the family settled in Miami, where he was raised and educated. Growing up among close-knit Cuban exiles instilled in him a strong sense of community, dignity, and identity that he'd carry into his adult life as a writer. Richard Blanco, welcome to Appalachian, and welcome to Sound Effect. Great to be here. We're so glad to have you here on our campus and also in our studio. Um, It's definitely our honor to have you here. You have described yourself as an emotional historian. How did you arrive at that, and what does that mean? Well, I I think that part of the role of poetry, really arts in general, is to record uh, what it feels like feels like to live in a certain time period and, or a certain group of people or a certain through a certain crises or whatever that case might be. For me personally, part of my motivation when I first started writing was to document my own generation as a bridge generation of Cuban Americans, which is a unique generation, but also the stories of my community at large, my exile community. Um, and so in part, it's it's that idea that drive to record stories, right? Things you're not going to find in a newspaper, you're not going to find in a magazine article, you're not going to find in other sources, right? Because ultimately the arts record what, what it feels like to live, right? And if you look, at, I think if you look at all civilizations, what we end up always remembering is the art. Right, and that's what lives on because it's 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 still translatable over over centuries. Sure, yeah. You know that actually is a great segue to my next question because I want to ask you when you knew you wanted to and when you knew you could be a poet for a profession because 
I really think this is something our students will want to know in particular, um, because to your point, people appreciate the arts and the arts, you know, they last and that's something that we look back on. But um, I think there's a longstanding skepticism that the arts can be a living. Um, I'm the daughter of an artist, so I can right. relate to that a little bit and also to what it's like to be the daughter of an artist, right? Who's, who's trying to make that living through the arts. So can you talk a little bit about what, what that realization was like for you and when you knew you wanted to and then when you knew you could um, I'm still kind of waiting for that. <laughs> <laughs> I think to be an artist is always to be part of something that doesn't exist. And in that way, there's always a certain amount of skepticism, a certain amount of healthy skepticism, a certain amount of healthy self-doubt that I think keeps you driving. But there's many, there's many layers to that answer. One, I think that sometimes we overly romanticize the idea of what an artist, what it means to be an artist. And that, you know, if you're not painting by two years old and, you know, or in the womb, you know, you're not a real <laughs> artist, right? And everybody's story is sort of unique. Everybody's journey into the art and, and really in many other fields, everything they, they discover who they are and what they want to do. I was actually, um, the circumstances were such as a working class family, a uh, kid from a family that, you know, did not have books in the house. Uh, there were limitations on what possibilities they had or even would even know of, right? We, mm -hmm. didn't, we weren't reading Frost or talking about Picasso around the dinner table. That was one element. The other element was a cultural divide. So my parents did not even know who the Rolling Stones were, mm -hmm. much less Frost. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they knew some of their Cuban artists and some Cuban poets and whatnot, but that had sort of nothing to do with me in some ways, at least at an early age. And then there was a, another element, which was homophobia. My grandmother, who was <clears throat> who was a person who was my primary caretaker, was quite homophobic. So um, one time I wanted to study architecture, and she thought even that was too gay. So wow. <laughs> so there, so the stage was set for me to have sort of uh, it was doctor, lawyer, engineer. I should preface all this by saying that I was always a left brain, right brain kid. I loved everything, still love everything. Knowledge to me is all powerful, and all of it is at some point useful to whatever you do. I studied engineering, not necessarily because my parents forced me, or this is kind of the only possibility I kind of had, um, the only thing I kind of knew to do. Sometimes the narrative that people think in their head is that I was forced to study engineering and I discovered poetry and the clouds parted open and the cherubs came down. And <laughs> and I always like to tell people, yeah, I really wanted to go into poetry full time because there was so much money in it. Right, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I decided ethically I had to stay as an engineer. But anyway, I graduated as an engineer, started working as an engineer full time in a consulting office. And that's where I discovered poetry. Um, How did that happen? <laughs> engineering paved the road to poetry. Well, Again, knowledge is knowledge. And about 50% of my job involved writing and all sorts of written and oral communication skills, mm -hmm. writing reports, studies, letters, proposals. The viability of a, of a engineering firm depends on proposals. I'm getting in that $400 million job and a proposal is nothing but a narrative of words, right. <laughs> a story, right? So I really dove into language and my right brain kicked in. I said, oh, this is really cool. And I finally understood like these ideas of audience and tone and diction and word choice and... And then I thought, oh, I knew I wanted to do something creative as well, mm -hmm. uh, in addition to, and I thought, what's the weirdest thing I can do? And I was <laughs> like, let's write poetry. And so I just started writing poetry, really, really bad, rhymey, rhymey poetry. My sense of poetry was very archaic, but I really didn't start writing until I was like 25 or 26. So the learning curve was pretty fast. I skipped all the teenage angst poems and whatnot. And so, but to answer your question, I just, I fundamentally think that we're living in a world where we worry too much about those things. Writing uh, is not a career. And the sooner you realize that, the better. 
it's a vocation. That means you're going to do it no matter what, mm-hmm. right? And I wrote and was a professional engineer all my life. And I was a successful poet and a successful engineer. Of course, when the White House called, it was, of course, a game changer. But I did the work. I showed up. And you just never know what will happen with your artwork. Of course, you never want to lose sight of your vision and whatnot. But the truth and the practical matter of it is that we have to earn a living. And if we want families, we have to support our families Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And there's nothing absolutely wrong with that. And just because you have another job or another career or another thing that puts bread on the table, you're not a sellout. We all have to find our ways and we all come from different means and we all come from different stories, different backgrounds that limit or say we discover new things for ourselves and how to make our way in the world. And I think that's really true of whatever we pick, (laughs) whether it's an engineer, doctor, lawyer, artist, painter, we always sort of have to find our own unique way through life. So I have a question about what it meant to become an inaugural poet, but I'm also really curious, now that I know more about your background, how you got from that moment where you were an engineer saying, hey, I'm going to try poetry and writing the poems, the rhymy poems that you say were bad, to Mm -hmm. getting that call from the White House. How how did you get from point A to point B there? Um, Well, um, I took a couple classes at community college. I was just exploring my creative curiosities and my intellectual curiosities. I was really just doing it for me. In a way, it was a luxury because it was something, of course, that my family would have never paid for. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's because they didn't understand it, right? So I was just sort of doing it for me, and I think that made all the difference. Um, I never quit my day job. did a couple of community college classes, like I said, and then eventually applied to Master's in Fine Arts and Creative Writing. I was accepted, went through the whole program, and graduated while still working full-time as an engineer thinking, yeah, maybe someday I'll get a book published. Maybe someday I'll teach in an MFA program. And then that happened. (laughs) So I took a hiatus from uh, engineering for about three, four years and taught in Connecticut State at Georgetown American University. And yeah, those three. Well, Wesleyan was later on. And then um, after that, a lot of my work has to do with place, home, and belonging. And so that's very important to me. Where I live Mm -hmm. is very important to me. As an academic, you can't always choose where you want to live. You have to know where the job is. So I decided to just go back to Miami and resume my engineering career. And actually, I ended up really liking that kind of separation because compartmentalizing my left brain and my right brain was really healthy for me. Uh When I was having a bad poetry day, I'd immerse myself in engineering. When I was having a bad engineering day, I'd write poetry at work. Um, it's probably so, really handy for the ego too, I would so, imagine. Yeah, yeah, because you, <laughs> you, know? you, you know you have something else to draw from sure, to yeah. pull yourself up. Sure. Um, uh, but even then, I, again, sharing the story of a journey, even after two books and awards and all this stuff, I was still like, I'm not a poet. Like this is just a fluke. Like I'm really meant to be an architect. <laughs> I'm the world's greatest architect. <laughs> <laughs> and I I got a portfolio together and. Um, was accepted to a master's program in architecture. And I quit after three weeks because I realized it was the world's worst architect. <laughs> and the reason I share that is that sometimes sometimes we insist on things in our lives. And I'm like, that was always something I thought I really, really, really wanted to do, not poetry. But you never know where your journey takes you. So I recommitted myself to this idea that, you know, I wasn't a fake and that there were no mistakes in my life, that I was meant to be a poet engineer. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a great thing, a great, healthy and wonderful thing. And uh, went about writing and working as an engineer. And then eventually after the third book, shortly after the third book, um, the White House called. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, you know, you show up, you keep on doing the work. Right. Um, I think a lot of times in America, we only see the polished end, end product of of a celebrity or of sure, a, yeah. or of any kind of anybody that has any kind of success, and we don't realize the story behind that or the underpinnings of the doubts, the journeys, the ups and downs that happen with the career. So, yeah, I am, um, and now I'm in another phase actually because it's it's a whole brand new world. I mean, I have never earned a living as a writer. So I'm negotiating all these other doubts and all these other complexities that I never had to before. So the journey continues. <laughs> Are you the only poet engineer that you know? Uh, as far as I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting. Uh, when you get your professional license, you're, you get the two little letters after your name, P-E, except in my case, it was poet engineer. And I love I, it. Um, I got my MFA and my engineering license in the same year. So I got my poetic license and my, my uh, engineering license in the same year. Well, you're such an underachiever. <laughs> I try yeah. to be. I try to be an underachiever. Speaking of which, only three presidents, John F. Kennedy, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama, have had poets read at their inaugurations. So what did that mean for you to join this elite group of five poets personally. And was that a moment for you career-wise that you recognized at the time or, you know, obviously maybe in retrospect recognize, but. Yeah, I didn't quite recognize it at the time mm -hmm. um, in the sense that first of all, when they called um, the white house called, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it because it's not, I mean, there's a Pulitzer Prize every year and then like, there's it's like something you're not even a finalist for, you never applied for. Um, it's kind of like winning a lottery and never even buying a ticket. So, <laughs> so at the time, I actually thought it was I. I couldn't wrap my head around it. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, the phone just rang and, it, and hi, this yeah, is the White House I, calling. I was driving from, I was driving to Maine, I think, from New York City, and I was like, what? And like, the person finally said, like Robert Frost and my Angela. I'm like, oh. <laughs> and then for a while, I thought, my friend Brian, like set me up for prank like this is ridiculous <laughs> like, so i googled the person's name and sure enough it's a presidential inaugural committee uh, scheduler and so um so this was december 12th the inauguration is january 21st when you're asked to write three poems wow <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but my first response uh emotional response wasn't really terror <laughs> um that came later it was, <laughs> it was really just sort of this feeling I've never had before, which is like this really overwhelming sense of gratitude, not because of what was happening to me, but realizing that this journey that began with my parents and my grandparents, right? That the decisions that they made, their their insistence on education, the sacrifices that they made as immigrants, um, the things that they lost, so many things that just had to line up. And I felt like, in a way, like a page had turned in my life. And mm -hmm. part of that was that that story came way before me and it was finally now my story. And it's this weird feeling of sort of being handed the baton, so to speak, that everything sort of had led up to this point. And it was really just, a, again, a sense of incredible gratitude um, more than anything else. Then later, terror. <laughs> but <laughs> but it, I still didn't realize the historical significance of it because I just need to write a poem right now, right? And also what's really weird, it's isolating because who are you going to call? Right. You know, I luckily I kind of marginally knew Elizabeth Alexander, but I wasn't going to call my Angela. I was like, hey girl, 
so how did, what did you wear? Like, you know, <laughs> what do you do with that? Right. What poet friend could I possibly call and tell him, first of all, how do you write something like this? And what do you do with that? So I was just caught up in the moment. And uh, luckily my partner, Mark at the time just took over all the logistics and everything and, and realized this is huge. And I'm like, I'm just going to read a poem. Like, I was just like, I'll come back, walk the dog, you know, like <laughs> I, I just, and here it is almost seven years and I still feel like I've not gotten back home yet right, <laughs> from right, being on the right. road. So it was later that it sort of hit me. Um, and it actually hit me right at that moment when I'm sitting, waiting to be called up to the podium to read the poem. It was really the first time I really had a quiet time by myself with my mother sitting next to me. And... It was that moment where I said, oh, my God, some gay Cuban-American immigrant Latino kid is going to read a poem, and it's me. (laughs) And I finally felt more, more so I finally felt I'm finally home in a way, right? Like this, this grand sense of having a place at the American table, and not just for me, but also for probably millions of people that felt just like me that weren't quite sure that they were part of the American narrative. They were not quite sure they had a place at that table that have always been on the margins of our narratives, right? So um, the honor of getting to represent that and feel that at the same time was really immense. I turned to my mother and I said, well, I guess we're finally Americanos because if this doesn't do it, (laughs) what does, right? Do you still feel that way? Um, Yes and no, I think. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I certainly do not not feel that mm-hmm. way, right? Um, but at the center of all my work is this question of home, right? And home is a very complex word, and it's a huge word, and it's like asking what is love, and it evolves and changes over time. I've had several sort of phases of what home, in terms of cultural identity, even in terms of sexuality, what does that mean to mm-hmm. me, right? Um, we'll give you the whole nine yards, but <laughs> at first you grow up initially sort of rejecting your cult, your given culture because it's your parents and whatever your parents right. represent is like, people often misunderstand that. They think, oh, I just love being Cuban and eating pork on Thanksgiving every year. Um, <laughs> so you want to be this American. And then eventually the writing, when I started writing, maybe explore those deep questions of where am I from, where I belong, you know, usually happens right around early to mid twenties. And writing drew that out of me, went to Cuba and then fell in love or really reclaimed or claimed for the first time, the totality of my cultural heritage and really embraced it. And then I became like, sort of like a little bit of like an anti-American, like <laughs> just like when you started reading like, all that really happened in our history and like, and then I lived in New England still chasing that sort of quintessential America. Then that didn't really quite exist. And then traveled a lot. And then at some point I was just um, sort of in a doldrum about where I belonged. Um, I had explored a lot of avenues and all seemed to be tentative answers. But this quote by the poet Basho says, uh, life is a journey and the journey itself is home. I didn't misquote that. And I was kind of in that space when this happened with the White House. But it didn't end there because then <laughs> Obama, <laughs> we're having a group dinner one time and he walked in and he said, um, I just got off the phone with Raul Castro. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> so um, it was the beginning, uh, if I do the timing right, the beginning of this conversation of opening up relations with Cuba. And then I got asked to read and write a poem for the reopening of the U.S. Embassy. Mm -hmm. And that sort of of tossed the question of home back in the air. Oh, like maybe I can have a little place in Cuba. Maybe I am Cuban. Maybe I'm not American. Maybe I'm like, and even to that moment, what I realized then is that 
I was still thinking I had to pick one or the other. And that experience taught me, you don't have to pick, not in today's world. And that's kind of just silly because today's world is the question of home is even more complex than when I was growing up. And I just realized I can be both. I can be four things if I want to. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. that we we exist in the intersection of all those things. And so that's where I'm at in this place. So I'm not like I'm a diehard American, I'm a diehard Cuban. I'm like, I've tried to think of myself as a as a global citizen. I think this would be an interesting point in our conversation for you to read one of your poems, um, in particular uh, from your new book, How to Love a Country, um, Declaration of Interdependence. Sure, sure. Okay, so this poem, um, obviously the title refers to the Declaration of Independence, but this is the Declaration of Interdependence. And here you'll see excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. And what I think what I was trying to do in this poem, I think we've gotten at a point in our country where um, we've stopped seeing each other. There's a great saying, which also inspires this poem by the Zulu people. That's not a saying, but in the morning, the greeting is not, good morning. Like, it's like you look straight into someone's eyes and you say, I see you. And there's an immense power in that. And, uh, you know, we can sort of objectify and have abstracted whole cities, states, regions by what color they are on a map on a presidential inauguration once every four years. And so I think we need to break through these stereotypes and just start seeing each other as people that I think is part of what might break the deadlock of where we're at. Declaration of Interdependence. Such has been the patient sufferance. Where mothers bred instant potatoes, milk at a checkout line, where her three children pleading for bubblegum and their father, where the three minutes she steals to page through the tabloid, needing to believe even stars' lives are as joyful as bruised. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. Where her second job, serving an executive absorbed in his Wall Street journal, at a sidewalk cafe shadowed by skyscrapers, where the shadows of the fortune he won and the family he lost were his loss and the lost, where a father in a coal town who can't mine a life anymore because too much and too little has happened for too long, a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, where the grit of his main street's blacked-out windows and graffitied truths where street in another town, lined with royal palms, at home with a Peace Corps couple who collect African art, where their dinner party talk of wines, wielded picket signs and burned draft cards, where what they know, it's time to do more than read the New York Times, buy fair trade coffee and organic corn. And every stage of oppressions we have petitioned for redress. Where the farmer who grew that corn, who plows into his couch is worn as his back by the end of the day, where his TV set blaring news having everything and nothing to do with the field dust in his eyes or his son nested in the ache of his arms, where his son, where a teenager who drove too fast or too slow, talked too much or too little, moved too quickly but not quick enough, where the blast of the bullet leaving the gun, where the guilt and the grief of the cop who wished he hadn't shot. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We're the dead. We're the living amid the flicker of vigil candlelight. We're in a dim cell with an inmate reading Dostoevsky, where his crime, his sentence, his amends, with the mending of ourselves and others. We're a Buddhist serving soup at a shelter alongside a stockbroker. We're each other's shelter and hope 
a widow's 50 cents in a collection plate, and a golfer's $10,000 pledge for a cure. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We're the cure for the hatred caused by our despair. We're the good morning of a bus driver who remembers our name, the tattooed man who gives up his seat on the subway. We're every door held open with a smile when we look into each other's eyes the way we behold the moon. We're the moon. We're the promise of one people, one breath declaring to one another, I see you. I need you. I am you. Wow. I really love that poem because it speaks to the outsider and the insider in all of us, I think. Um, And so I wanted to ask you about whether you felt like an outsider in any aspect of your life and what that experience was like. And also if there are advantages maybe to being the outsider. Yeah, I think... um I think to be an artist, you always feel like somewhat of an outsider. Um, it's part of what drives your work is to push open things, push through things, right? To break boundaries that you feel are real or, or at least perceive them as such. Certainly always questioning. Um, and the place of questioning is always, in a sense, isolating and feeling like an outsider, right? Because sometimes you're sitting, isn't anybody else asking these questions? I mean, the poem itself, in a way, you know, what I wanted to do in this book and also in this poem was not just preach the choir and not just uh, hear one-sided argument. And this was a little dangerous for me because I, I'm trying to push a boundary that I feel, you know, I feel also the perspectives of working-class kid, as a Latino, as, um, and sometimes I I feel outside even of the liberal sort of perspective in some ways, right, that can have its own blind side. And so that the people that populate this poem also have their own blind sides, right? And are also outsiders in in different ways. But yeah, I just wanted us to, again, see through those boundaries and thinking about what is an outsider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've talked about coming out as gay in an environment that was not supportive. Do you find yourself being asked to or offering advice to young people in similar situations? And if so, what do you say? Um. I do often, and I try to do as much work as I can, or or I should say I have a soft spot in my heart for teenage LGBTQ uh, youth in that respect because because of what I went through, right? Um, but also, um, we're in a, again, it's like there's so many layers and um, we talk about outsider where you live, you know, there's this sort of, I worry that there's this sort of, this appearance that come out, come out wherever you are, right? Mm-hmm. And everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And um, because, because we see on TV, because now there's marriage equality and all right. this stuff. And so it really depends where you live. And it really depends on what family you come from. And it really depends on what religion you come from. And it depends on a lot of other factors. And I've heard horror stories of, you know, kids that are thrown out of their house at 15 or 16. And it's one thing to sort of be disowned, so to speak, when you're 25, when you're financially hopefully independent and have an education. It's another thing to do that when you're 16. So I try to be that that person for them because actually I went through a world where you did not come out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I try to remember, and actually sometimes even with parents, (laughs) Uh, have talked to me like, I know my son's gay, but he won't come out. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. It doesn't happen that way. Give everybody room. And also just letting youth know that you don't have to come out. It's mm-hmm. when you are ready and mm-hmm. whenever whenever you feel like you're ready. I'm someone very close to my family just came out to me. And I was like, great, because you can tell he was he was ready, right? He was ready. And so I think there's sometimes this 
popular pressure in a way that 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 you're supposed to, right? Yeah. Um, I lived on the other extreme where that that thought couldn't even cross your mind, you know, back growing up in going to high school in the 80s, like that just did not even cross your mind, right? So I try to work with youth in that respect. This morning on NPR uh, driving in, I heard about what they called, um, I had to look this up so I could get it right, the most profound shift in public attitudes ever recorded. And they were referencing public opinion on homosexuality. And um, they quoted the general social survey, which measures general social attitudes in America. And that showed a shift from 88 when 11% of Americans said that they believed gay people should have the right to marry to 68% in 2018. Um, and the Freedom of, uh, Freedom to Marry group commissioned a poem from you to yes. commemorate the 10-year anniversary of the first U.S. state, Massachusetts, to legally recognize the right of same-sex couples to marry. So you wrote the poem, Until We Could, in um, 2014. Um, I'd like to ask you to read the poem, sure. Until We Could. Um, you want to talk about it a little bit first or uh, after? Before or after, either one. It's up to you. Um, yeah, you know, Freedom to Marry, as I understood it, and when I got this commission, uh, it's a commission poem, which is a whole new thing for me. It's kind of an occasional poem, but different. You know, largely what they did was change the rhetoric and change the language. And that sort of was a tipping point, at least in this particular topic of marriage Mm -hmm. equality. But a lot of people were doing a lot of work and it had come to like a standstill, like a plateau. And the changing the language, of course, I'm geeking out on that, but how powerful language is, right? Right, And when we change language, we change how we think, we change who we are, we change how we think about other people. And so I'm so happy for that that they got that, right? And so it was an honor to write a poem in that respect. Um, it was also turned into a short film. Beautiful, um, beautiful, yeah. Uh, produced into a short film as a celebration of their 10-year anniversary. You can YouTube that, and if you'd like, it's called Until We Could, Richard Blanco, Freedom to Marry. It was the first poem I ever wrote, knowing that it would be a film, which was really interesting. So you knew it would at the time? Yeah. Oh, okay, I was wondering about so, that. Um, and beautiful narration of that, too. So there's some, um, I can think, parts that I think I felt could be dramatized and uh and of course i i imagined like brad pitt and ryan gosling kissing but um that wasn't <laughs> i don't think that was quite in the budget for the i think the people they had were more beautiful frankly <laughs> and some of the most beautiful images just of the two coffee cups together. yeah i love that one um, yeah. just the mundane parts of human life that yeah yeah so beautiful. it would have worked against it if it was like too flashy what got me through the poem. <laughs> so it's actually obviously loosely based. On, well, not loosely based, but obviously also based on my own relationship of 20 years. And uh, my partner actually just proposed to me um, a couple of weeks ago. So. Congratulations. <laughs> so that's really crazy. Oh, wow. Uh, so I read this poem completely differently now. I get choked up too, and I don't usually do that with my own poetry. But here we go. Well, I hope we both make it through without crying. <laughs> and hopefully I can just, just read this at the wedding and that's it. <laughs> We're married. <laughs> <laughs> Until we could, for Mark. I knew it then, when we first found our eyes in our eyes, and everything around us, even the din and smoke of the city, disappeared leaving us alone as if we were the only two men in the world, two mirrors face to face, my reflection in yours, yours and mine, infinite. I knew since I knew you, but we couldn't. I caught the sunlight pining through the shears, traveling millions of dark miles simply to graze your skin, as I did that first dawn I studied you sleeping beside me. Yes, I counted your eyelashes, read your dreams like butterflies flitting under your eyelids, ready to flutter into the room. Yes, I praised you 
like a majestic creature my God forgot to create, until that morning of you tamed in my arms, first for me to see and name you mine. Yes, to the rise and fall of your body, your every exhale and inhale a breath I breathed as my own, wanting to keep even the air between us as one. Yes, to all of you. Yes, I knew, but still, we couldn't. I taught you how to dance salsa by looking into my Caribbean eyes. You learned to speak Spanish in my tongue while teaching me how to catch snowflakes in my palms, love the gray clouds of your worn-out hometown. Our years began collecting in glossy photos, timelining our lives across shelves and walls, glancing back at us, us embracing in some sunset more captivated by each other than the sky-brushed plum rose, us claiming some mountain that didn't matter as much as our climbing it together, us leaning against columns of ruins as ancient as our love was new or leaning into our dreams at a table, flickering candlelight in our full-mooned eyes, I knew me as much as us, and yet we couldn't. Though I forgave your blue eyes turning green each time you lied and kept believing you, though we managed to say good morning after muted nights in the same bed, Though every door slam told me to hold on by letting us go and saying you're right became as true as saying I'm right till there was nothing a long walk couldn't solve. Holding hands and hope under the streetlights lustering like a string of pearls guiding us home or a stroll along the beach with our dog, the sea washed out by our smiles, our laughter roaring louder than the waves. Though we understood our love, was the same as our parents, though we dared to tell them so, and they understood, though we knew we couldn't. No one could. When fiery kick lines and fires were set for us by our founding mother-fathers at Stonewall, we first spoke of defiance. Then we paraded glitter, leather, and rainbows. Our word then became pride down city streets, demanding, just let us be. But that wasn't enough. Parades became rallies, bold words on signs, shouting, until we all claimed freedom as another word for marriage and said, let us in, insisted love is love. Proclaimed it into all eyes that would listen at any door that would open until no's and maybes turned into yeses, town by town, city by city, state by state, understanding us and all those who dare to say enough until the gravel struck into law what we always knew. Love is the right to say, I do, and I do, and I do. And I do want us to see every tulip we've planted come up spring after spring, a hundred more years of dinners cooked over a shared glass of wine, and a thousand more movies in bed. I do, until our eyes become voices speaking, Without speaking, I do until, like a cloud meshed into a cloud, there's no more you, me, our names useless. I do want you to be the last face I see, your breath, my last breath. I do. I do, and will, and will for those who still can't vow it yet, but know love's exact reason as much as they know how a sail keeps the wind without breaking. 
or how roots dig away into the earth, or how the stars open their eyes to the night, or how a vine becomes one with the wall it loves, or how when I hold you, you are still rain in my hands. It's such a beautiful piece. Thank you. <laughs> When I was reading the piece and watching the film and thinking about um, the significance of this personal love story and also sort of a coming of age of the movement story as well, just all being wrapped up into that. And this was a commissioned piece for mm -hmm. you. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to kind of wrap all those things together? Yeah. I mean, the inauguration was really moved the needle for me in terms of it's something we're never taught in school, and it speaks to some degree of the separation that we have of the art of poetry from the everyday person in America. You certainly see a more overlap in Latin America and almost every other country in the world where the poetry is part of the folklore. Mm -hmm. It's part of if people feel they own the, their poets, right? Um, I can't get into too many reasons. That's an act, uh, more of a historian, academic work. But certainly, and of course, America has had moments like the Beat Poets and the Harlem Renaissance Poets where poetry got closer and started being part of the very fabric of what was happening and, and a voice for, mm -hmm. as I say, for the people, the people, by the people. Poetry, to me, still stands. And I think my background as such has always sort of understood poetry in that way, at least emotionally, that it should reach beyond another poet and beyond just a closed circle. So the inauguration certainly was a learning curve because I never really had those assignments. And between, I'd been commissioned to write poems for, well, also just not even commissioned poems I've chosen to write for Boston Strong, Pulse, Pulse nightclub shootings, um, the um, Parkland High School shooting. Mm -hmm. um, I was commissioned for a poem for Silicon Valley to honor innovation and humanitarian um, Innovators, I should say, poem for the Fragrance Foundation in New York. <laughs> uh, reading a poem with like for <laughs> with Taylor Swift and like <laughs> these people in the audience, and it's like, why not? Why can't poetry be part of that world? And so the inauguration work changed me in several, but it also opened people's eyes, and suddenly, oh, we can have a poet actually, or we can have a poem here, we can we can celebrate life, we can honor life, we can mourn together by using poetry as a centerpiece and a poet. So something like this, what I've learned, the gist of it, and where I think the pitfall is that people think when you write an occasional poem or commissioned poem that it's about the occasion or the commission, and it's not. Gotcha. <laughs> it yeah. is and it isn't. It's what you feel about the occasion, what you feel. And you have to just try and find that overlap. What does my audience care about that I also care about? Because mm -hmm. you, you can't fake honesty in a poem, right? No, or in any art, I think. In any art. Yeah. And the inauguration, for example, I put myself in there, my mom, my dad, because I am one of those people. Yeah. That was a really breakthrough moment in the poem for me. It's like, no, no, I'm not going to be this talking head of like just telling people what America should be or can be and like, you know, liberty and justice for all. And like, that's politicians' jobs. That's what the speech writers do, yeah. That's what speech writers' <laughs> jobs are, right? But even if you look at speech writers, if you look at, like, especially Obama's speech writer. They're really good ones, There's yeah. always ethos, pathos, I forget how it goes, but there's this idea of establishing authority, but using a real-life example mm -hmm. of people, a real honest experience, and then elaborating on that. I teach a course, um, I've taught a course at graduate seminars. In some ways, it's not that different. It parallels the idea, when I write a personal poem, an autobiographical poem, I'm still thinking of an audience. I'm thinking, how can I write this 
that will be relatable to a reader's life, right? And at the end of the day, you're just appealing to the, you know, basic five kinds of human emotions, right? Because you know that you're writing the poem, you know, in a way, every poem is an occasion. I saw a tree, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my mother died, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, I'm be facetious and I can wish she's still alive, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, and I think it helps us to write our own personal poetry when we have this exercise, because you're more aware of audience. And I've seen in writing classes, what happens, it gets so insular, the idea of audience starts completely disappearing. And then it's just becomes this cryptic poem, which gives the, the genre a bad reputation, right? So this really makes you really understand audience in the sense of there's going to be a million people watching me read this poem, or there are going to be 10 million people <laughs> seeing this film. Who are those people, right? right? And how can I appeal to them also by something that moves me that I hope will move them or I, I suspect will move them in the same way. In this case, how could I not base this poem on my own experiences of love? I would be a fake, I would be a, a fool not to, right? Um, and I think the honesty that comes through, but yet open enough. So it's the irony of poetry, of all art in a way that the universal is in the specific. And I think that still applies to an occasional poem or commissioned poem. You just find that connection between you and your audience um, that is the the spark. Yeah. Well, thank you. So there's one last poem that I'd like uh, you to read. And so we can talk about before or after. I, you know, sometimes people like to do it either way, but sure. um, it's Mother Country. Sure. So uh, this poem was, was the third poem that I wrote for uh, the White House. And they asked me to write three, as I mentioned. And they had, I had already given them two and they liked one today. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to write whatever the hell I want. Um, <laughs> they got two poems ready out of me. <laughs> I'm tired. <laughs> and the press release was about to go out and like, <laughs> it's like crazy. I'm writing all this like in secret too. I couldn't even tell my mother for like three weeks. Um, but anyways, I turned to my mother's story for inspiration in this poem and thinking, um, my mother left her entire family behind in Cuba. So her eight brothers and sisters, her parents, every aunt and uncle, every niece and nephew. And um, we always kind of admired the kind of courage, but also lived with feeling her sense of loss and longing. And at this occasion, I also realized that my mother is more of an American for that act of faith, as it was also a complete act of faith in our ideals. Uh, in the ideals of this country. She's more of an American than I could ever be. And so this poem asks us to look at our country through my mother's eyes, or I should say my mother's emotional shoes, and imagine that we had to lose this country. How might we re-examine our perspective about what our role is in our democracy, how we're engaging in this democracy? And I think immigrants in general remind us of that, right? They remind us their journeys and what they sacrifice and lose for the sake of the stuff that we take for granted every day. It's an important reminder to not take it for granted. Mother country, madre patria. To love a country as if you've lost one. 1968, my mother leaves Cuba for America. A scene I imagine as if standing in her place. One foot inside a plane destined for a country she knew only as a name, a color on a map or glossy photos from drugstore magazines. Her other foot anchored to the platform of her patria, her hand clutched around one suitcase, taking only what she needs most, hand-colored photographs of her family, her wedding veil, the doorknob of her house, 
a jar of dirt from her backyard, goodbye letters she won't open for years. The sorrowful drone of engines, one last deep breath of familiar air she'll take with her. One last glimpse at all she'd ever known. The palm trees wave goodbye as she steps onto the plain. The mountains shrink from her eyes as she lifts off into another life to love a country. As if you've lost one. I hear her once upon a time reading picture books over my shoulder at bedtime, both of us learning English, sounding out words as strange as the talking animals and fair-haired princesses in their pages. I taste her first attempts at macaroni and cheese, but with chorizo and peppers. <laughs> and her shame over Thanksgiving turkeys, always dry, but countered by her perfect pork penil and garlic yubica. I smell, I smell the rain of those mornings huddled as one, under one umbrella, waiting for the bus to her 10-hour days at the cash register. And at night, the zzz, zzz, of her sewing her own blouses and quinceanera dresses for her grown nieces still in Cuba, guessing at their sizes. And the gowns she'd sell the neighbors to save for a rusty right sedan, no hubcaps, no air conditioning, sweating all the way through our first vacation to Florida theme parks to love a country, as if you've lost one, as if it were you on a plane departing from America forever, clouds closing like curtains on your country, the last scene in which you're a madman scribbling the names of your favorite flowers, trees, and birds you'd never see again, your address and phone number you'd never use again the color of your father's eyes and your mother's hair, terrified you could somehow, someday, forget these. To love a country. As if I was my mother last spring, hobbling, insisting I help her climb all the way up to the U.S. Capitol, as if she were here before you today, instead of me, explaining her tears, her cheeks pink as the cherry blossoms coloring the air that day. When she stopped, turned to me, and said, You know, mijo, it isn't where you're born that matters. It's where you choose to die. That is your country. I really enjoyed hearing you talk about, you know, what, what was behind you writing this poem. And when I was reading it, um, I just related my own experience, my own, I, all I could think of was my grandmother who was born in, um, right over the mountain in East Tennessee. And her escape was from Appalachian poverty, right. but she left her family and she went off on this great adventure. And so I think, um, there's this, um, I think there's something universal about looking at the matriarchs in our family and thinking about how they got to where they are and the struggles that they went through, um, and as I get older, I feel less, um, I guess, sad maybe about what they went through and more pragmatic. And I think there's something extremely pragmatic at the end of your poem I really like about the, you know, it's where you choose to die. Right. And that to me, um, 
I don't know, it just so beautifully tells that story. And there's something that I guess I can relate to about my grandmother's experience as I get older. Because when I was younger, all I could feel was the loss that she must have experienced. And the older I get, the more I'm kind of relating to the the pragmatism about her choices that she made. And so I wonder if, was there something to that? Am I just reading too much into it? No, I think that's kind of like what I, what I, like I was saying, like I had always lived with her loss and her longing yeah. and like, Bodicita, as we say, you know, like there's always a sense. And then um, when that moment happened with my mother and, um, and that's kind of why I'm the one that, I mean, I took obviously my partner, but she was the one who was able to sit right next to me in a way. This was part of her story. Mm-hmm. She said that because she realized that she's lived more of her life here in the United States sure, than she's in yeah. Cuba. And she herself has gotten over that sense of loss and longing and whatnot and has just sort of healed. She's, I think, found um, a certain amount of pride and understanding that her journey, that she made the right decisions, so to speak. So there was this kind of um, an awakening that, no, this is my country. And like, so it's not only, you know, not die for, it's like where you choose to die. People think it's like, you know, dying for one's country is not at all that. This is like where you choose to die, right? <laughs> where your bones will be buried or your ashes will be scattered. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot of that that she's kind of, she herself has been on that journey herself, like just thinking about what it's all meant. And I think in some ways, seeing her son read a poem to the entire country in a way was like, okay, I made the, I made a very good practical choice. <laughs> yeah. This, this panned out, right? Yeah. I can't imagine her feeling anything else at, at that moment for sure. So, But you often think, right? I mean, life is made up of small decisions, right? Like we often do think we glorify things like, and I often, I have a poem about that too. It's called of consequence and consequently, these small decisions are that most of the most important things that happen in our life are really, a bunch of little teeny decisions. And um, and so we'd look back, yeah, we kind of over-romanticize and they are in a way like just trying to survive. And like, mm-hmm. there's the sense, okay, and, or it's step by step and there's small, uh, small decisions that are made. But I often think, what a miracle that all those little <laughs> decisions ended up with me, right? Yeah. And that's a, and I don't mean that me, oh, Richard Blanco, but in a sense of gratitude that, as I said, you know, three quarters of your story is already written by the time you're born, right? <laughs> like a lot of what you become sure, has already yeah. been decided, so to speak. Or, and I often think if my parents would have never left Cuba, who would I be? And every time I go back to Cuba, not even go back because I wasn't born there, but I feel like I'm, I am going back. Every time we go to Cuba, it always feels like there's this ghost of me that I'm trying to find what, like a parallel universe, like what, who would Richard Blanco, Ricardo de Jesus Blanco be if my parents hadn't left? And how that singular, that singular decision that's made up of many small decisions, right? Crazy when you start thinking the ripple effect of that. Yeah, because you can take that back a couple more generations too. Yeah, you know, yeah. keep they were, thinking that the poem does that. What if yeah. what if my great grandparents would have never left Spain? And like, what if my dad was two inches shorter? You know? <laughs> <laughs> my mother would have never gone through it. You know? like, <laughs> chance and chance and chance and well, I think it relates to what we we're talking about earlier about journey and picking a career and like. You know, you, the best we can generally do is point in a general direction and like move. The thing is to not stand still. I like think it's just to keep on exploring and journeying. Uh, I'm no, I'm even at this age, and even with all that's happened to me, I'm still looking for the next thing. You know, I'm still looking for the next. What else haven't I done that I can bring 
fold poetry into or some other aspect. Again, trying to writing a play now, you know, you just got to keep moving, and and all, but also not necessarily knowing the exact path because then what what's the fun in that anyway? <laughs> well, I was going to ask you what advice you had for college students. I think we might have just heard it. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think that's part of it, and I mean, I I know that probably I've seen already that they grow up with so much incredible pressure. I mean, I've seen already. I mean, I guess teach sometimes as young as third grade. And I see even in grade school, like already the teachers and like seriously teaching them in terms of what they're going to be when they grow up. I'm like, and nobody's like says fireman anymore, like, <laughs> an astronaut. Is like, no, that's not practical, little Johnny. You're going to be, <laughs> you're going to go to MIT and you're going to study robotics. <laughs> it's just kind of like sad. Like I'm like, God, I just, I went to my my school, which is now a major research university in Florida, in Miami. But when I went, it was four buildings and it was like practically almost a community college. And I kind of like, I went because my mother said like, well, it's right there. <laughs> right? And so you never know, right? And like- Little decisions. Little yeah. decisions. And like that had made all the difference. If I would have gone away to college, I, I was probably so confused culturally, sexually, who knows what would happen to me. But anyway, um, that's part of the advice is like, yes, we have to pick a general direction, but also more than that, what I want to say is everything that you learn and take it from the poet engineer kids, (laughs) Sonny, everything that you learn will come back to support your lead horse, right? I can tell you how important the humanities are in engineering. A lot of my projects have to deal with community development and you will spend two or three years in town meetings and working on collecting the consciousness of people and getting a consensus of what they want to do with their town, what kind of parks, what kind of this, why are we doing that? Not in my backyard, blah, blah, blah. And all that comes from the humanities and psychology even. And like, so yes, you're going to have a major and that's okay. But also you're going to live to be like 140 years old. So like, I don't think you're going to be doing the same thing. <laughs> like This outdated model that we're going to work for some company and like retire at whatever, early retirement at 55. So just do everything out of your pure intellectual curiosity. Well, I, I shouldn't say everything. Do it with a certain amount of practicality. Know that there's chances in your life to do things and to keep on exploring things. And this is one threshold. And and it's okay. Like, you don't have to decide what you're going to do exactly for the rest of your life. And in fact, even if you think you did and decided, it's not going to probably happen the way <laughs> take it from the poet engineer. <laughs> it's not going to probably happen the way you think it is. And it's probably going to be even better than you can ever imagine. So take that and pay attention to every single class. Everything will come back to support whatever success in whatever field you do. I mean, if you look at someone like Steve Jobs, who's like, you know, he's written about this. I mean, his humanizing the computers because his love of literature. And so here's this like techno geek, but like at the same time he incorporated, he made the computer human, right? He made, or humanized it, I should say. And I always use that as an example. That comes from literature, right? Maybe he didn't know that back then, or maybe he never really knew it. It just kind of happened. <laughs> and now he's looking back at, or looked back on his life and said, wow, that's how it happened. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to talk about? No, I think um, I did want to thank you for um, letting me read the poems. I think people in general don't recognize how important it is to read a poem out loud because it's so much more like music than a novel or like an essay. It's meant to be read out loud. It's meant to be music in its own way, even if it's not your own poem. 
but just reading a poem out loud starts living in your body in the same way that we like to sing along to songs. And we're like, we're not sure exactly what they mean, what the lyrics mean most of the time, but we're like, but you're like singing, yeah, welcome to the Hotel California. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you feel it, right? And I think as you study poetry and learn to love poetry, hopefully, um, or not be scared of it, at least, read it out loud. And also know that just like music, there's a thousand different kinds of poems um, and poetry and poets. And just because, you know, if you like, um, I'm going to use outdated terms, but just, you know, you might like punk rock and, and not, uh, I don't know, acid rock. And that doesn't mean that they're not both music. That just means you're going to find a proclivity and a, you're going to find the music that you like in poetry and the poets that you like. So I'm just putting my plug in for poetry in general. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a good month to do that. <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's true. <laughs> and you read it so beautifully. I mean, that I think that is a real art to reading poetry and some people are not that good at it, but you have, you do it beautifully. I mean, it really was kind of hard to pull myself back out and to ask you questions after that. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I've had a lot of practice in the last few years, but um, it's much more enjoyable for me because I actually go back into that emotional. It's just like singing a song again. Like you go back into that emotional space this way you can still you know, date myself again here. You know, you, you can still hear like James Taylor sing Fire and Rain and you can still see the emotions in his eyes and his gestures, right? There's something that we relive. Poetry is different that way. It, it, just like our favorite song that we can hear over and over again um, and somehow never get bored of, right? I think, I think for me, it happens every single time it's fresh in my body and it's my body that remembers it like music, not me. Mm -hmm. um, and the only way that really happened is actually by rehearsing it, not rehearsing, but reading it so many times that it starts telling you how to read it and the inflections and the breaths. And it happens not in my mind, but in my blood. Um, and that's much more exciting than just reading a poem <laughs> because I remember one time that I, I was at a reading, I think this was a turning point for me in that, regard and i was like i'm bored like if you had little bubbles <laughs> i was like i'm reading this poem blah 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 blah, and i was like oh my god i'm so bored reading your own poem yeah and oh I my thought, gosh if i'm bored i can only imagine what my audience <laughs> must feel like and ever since then, i just sort of stepped into it and said you know what i'm just gonna try and feel it like just feel it and just belt it you know yeah. <laughs> And and then every poem is different too, right? You you read just like every song. You're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna scream a ballad. You know, <laughs> you're not gonna like softly sing your Bohemian Rhapsody. You know? <laughs> so it's 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 so much like music. The parallels are uncanny. Um, and I think if people just just approach poetry that way, um, even in the classroom, it would be um, wouldn't wouldn't grow up so estranged from it. Yeah. Well, thank you. It has been my sincere honor to speak with you today, Richard Blanco. Thank you pleasure. so much. I'm so, um, just feel so fortunate to have had this hour with you. Hopefully we can continue to share this hour as you go on and get married. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I hope that um, your experience on our campus also makes you want to return maybe when you can spend a little more time and um, you have more time to enjoy the moment while you're here. Sure, so. this is a really interesting area that I think has a lot of intersections of things in it. So I can see that and a lot of negotiating um, as I've had to do. So hopefully yeah. there will be an opportunity to talk to that as well. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate um, your work and um, where it comes from and where what it helps me think about. And really, really appreciate that that you read your work with us today. I so. love doing that. Thank you so much. <laughs> it ain't a poem till somebody reads it out loud. <laughs>
Today's show was written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks with assistance from Wes Craig. Our web team is Pete Montaldi, Alex Waterworth, and Derek Wyckoff. Research assistance comes from Elizabeth Wall, and video and photo support come from Garrett Ford and Marie Freeman. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.